You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. So typically, whenever we start a book, we usually do a little bit of an introduction. So as we go through this passage, we're going to be looking at the author, the audience, and try to figure out an approximate date for the writing of this letter. So one thing that we should consider here is that this book, Philippians, is often regarded as the epistle or letter of joy from Paul the Apostle. And the reason for that is because when you look at the four chapters that comprise the book of Philippians, the word joy or rejoice comes up about a dozen times. And that's astounding when you consider the kind of situation that Paul was in as he was writing this letter. So without further ado, why don't we jump into our passage? Philippians 1, verse 1. We're told, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. So we don't have to look further than verse 1 to find out who is actually writing this letter. We're told that it's Paul the Apostle. And one thing that's kind of interesting about this is that when you look at skeptical scholars of the Bible... Typically, when they look at a New Testament letter, they dispute the authenticity of that letter and often say that it's that person's disciples writing typically hundreds of years later. And yet, the skeptical scholars, and really scholarship in general, agree that this is original material from Paul the Apostle. We're told that to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, So Paul tells us right out of the gate that he's writing this letter to the church in Philippi. And a little bit of background, if you're not really familiar with geography in the Middle East or in the Mediterranean, um, Philippi is a city, an ancient city, that's located on the eastern side of Greece, And if you go to the ancient city of Philippi today, you can actually walk around the ruins of that city. So this was a real historical place where Paul was writing to. Now, the origin of this church comes to us from Acts chapter 16. And I think it would be good for us maybe to dive a little bit deeper into Acts to try to figure out how did this church come to be? How did it come to exist? Now, Paul was on his second missionary journey when this miraculous thing happened. We're told that he got a vision of this man from Macedonia. God gave him this vision, and this man from Macedonia, which is in Greece, was telling him, you need to come to Macedonia because we need to hear the message of Jesus Christ. So Paul decided to faithfully listen to God's vision and went to the city. Shortly after entering into the city and meeting a few people, he actually meets this slave girl, him and Silas, as they're walking through the city. And this young slave girl, a little bit of background on her, she actually, we're told, is demon-possessed, that she has an evil spirit that has taken hold of her life. And as Paul and Silas are walking around the city, this woman is following her and yelling, these men are servants of the Most High God. You need to listen to them in order to be saved. 
which sounds great. But this was happening day after day, and we're told that Paul was so annoyed with her that finally he heals her and casts the evil spirit out of her. Now, the problem with that is this woman's owner actually was making a small fortune on her because this evil spirit was allowing her to predict the future. So this woman's owner was furious with Paul. And we're told in verses 19 through 21 that her owner seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our entire city into an uproar by advocating customs which are unlawful for us Romans to accept or to practice. Notice he says, these men are Jews, which seems weird that they would say that, but you got to kind of read between the lines. Throughout the history of the world, anti-Semitism has existed. And so what these guys were doing is they were basically trying to instigate a riot because of the racial hatred that they had toward the Jewish people. Well, the magistrates ordered Paul and Silas to be stripped and beaten with rods in the marketplace. And after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. The jailer put them into the inner cell and fastened their feet to the stocks. A few things to note from here. First of all, it says that they publicly humiliated him by stripping him naked in this market center. And then beat them with rods. I mean, these are not like those, you know, balsa wood dowel rods you can easily snap with your hands. These were like Louisville slugger baseball bats. So they beat Paul and Silas brutally, savagely, probably breaking ribs, causing tremendous internal bleeding. Not to mention they threw him into the inner cell, which would have been like solitary confinement in the jail and fasten their feet to stocks. So you can just imagine the kind of pain and discomfort that they were in. They're sitting there after being beaten unjustly, and they're up against the wall, stone wall probably, groaning from the pain of their beating, their feet in stocks, they're unable to move. And, you know, if you were Paul or Silas, you'd have to ask yourself, what would this do to your faith? You know, God clearly is calling you to do something, to take a step of faith for him. So you decide that you're going to listen, and you go into the city, you get mocked, you get beaten, you get thrown into jail, and you're probably thinking to yourself, I can't believe that this is happening. I didn't sign up for this. You know, you might be angry at God. You might be angry at the unjust system that puts you in this position. Either way, it would be incredibly confusing to be in this situation. God clearly led you to this, and yet something catastrophic happened. Well, at about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Can you imagine if you were another prisoner sitting there in the pitch black. All you can hear are audible groans from other prisoners. 
And at about midnight, you hear softly these two men praying to God and praising him. Suddenly, there was a violent earthquake at the foundation of the prison, and it was shaken. And all at once, the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains actually came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. If you were a Roman guard and you lost your prisoner, the Romans would basically say it's got to be your life for his. And so just as he's ready to take his own life, we're told Paul shouted out. He says, don't harm yourself for we're all here. And the jailer called out for the lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What does Paul say? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. I bet you if you went to a variety of different churches throughout the city and asked them this question, what must I do to be saved? You would probably get a bunch of different answers. It would probably go something like this. Believe in the Lord Jesus and then live a really good life for the rest of your life. And then maybe you can be saved. Or believe in the Lord Jesus, but make sure that you don't commit any mortal sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus and follow all of these rituals. Believe in the Lord Jesus and be baptized and then you will be saved. But that's not what Paul says here, right? He says, believe in the Lord Jesus, period. It's as simple as that. You see, the message of the Bible is extremely simple. So simple that even a small child can understand it. And God intended it that way because he wants people to come into a relationship with him. You know, if you wanted to summarize the message of Jesus Christ, it'd be very simple. It would be five words. Jesus died for your sins. And if we unpack that a little bit, what that means is that because of the things that we have done wrong, we are alienated, we're separated from God. Because he is incredibly morally perfect and and he can't come into the presence of people who are imperfect. But because of his love, because he cares about us, he sent his own son Jesus to come and die so that we can be saved, so that we can have a relationship with him. That's the essence of the Christian message. Well, when it was daylight, The magistrates sent officers to the jailer with the order, release these men. And the jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered you and Silas to be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. Have a nice day. And Paul's like, not so fast, pal. He says to them, they beat us publicly and without trial, even though we are Roman citizens. And they even threw us into prison. You could just imagine as the officers heard this, just like, you know, the record just skipping off track. And they're just like, you're a Roman citizen? And Paul says, and now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come out themselves and escort us out. And the officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. 
Why were they alarmed? It's because Roman citizens were afforded the right to a just trial. You can just throw them in the jail or just beat them just like, just like it is here in America. And so there was due process that they violated. So what they did here was a major no-no. They knew they were going to be in big trouble. Well, the magistrates came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. And after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them, and then they left. So one question that comes to mind here is, if Paul knew that all he had to say was, you need to stop right now because I'm a Roman citizen. If he was sitting with the trump card or the winning hand. <laughs> he was sitting there with the winning hand. He could have laid that down on the table at any moment. Why didn't he do that sooner? Why, why did he endure this beating and being thrown into prison and all, all of these other things? Why? Well, two reasons. I think, first of all, Paul knew that God was calling him to share the good news of Jesus Christ in this city. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't by accident that he was there. God called him there. So he knew that. He knew he was being faithful. Secondly, because of his experience, he, had, he knew that God would rescue him. That somehow he would use his suffering in a way that not only would be beneficial to him, but also to the people around him. And so Paul trusted that God would not only deliver him, but also would use his suffering for the good of the people around. And so that, that's why Paul decided not to rescue himself, but trusted God to do that for him. You know, it's likely that Paul negotiated with the magistrate when he was leaving the city. Hey, listen, you don't want me to tell the governor about what happened here in Philippi? Make sure you don't mess with my people. And what's, what's uh, largely absent from the book of Philippians is any mention of how they are being harshly persecuted. And so it may be that taking this beating and wrongful imprisonment actually allowed the Philippian church to worship God freely without persecution. Paul says to all the saints in Philippi. Now, depending on your church background, you might read this and think to yourself, saints. And when you think of a saint, you think of somebody who is like the best dead person ever to live, right? It's like you live a really good life for God, and at the end of your life, they basically canonize you as a saint. But that's actually the opposite of what Paul intended here. This word saint just simply means one who's dedicated or set apart. And it's not that we're set apart because we're like so much better than other people or that we are righteous and everybody else is evil. It's not that at all. It's that God has set us apart through Jesus Christ. That through the Spirit, he has made us distinct, not only in our values, but in the way that we live. And I think this contains a lot of significance for us. It has a lot of implications because 
What this tells us is that the entire book of Philippians, I don't know if you've ever read through it, there are parts of it that are a little bit difficult to understand. But God is writing that to the average Christian believer. It's not to like the elite Christian, the saint who has it all together, who's the scholar, but instead God is writing it to average people just like you and me. I remember this totally changing my mind about Christianity. The first time I heard this, when I was like nine or 10 years old, I remember going to church on a Sunday morning and sitting through the homily that the priest would give. And I came home that day and asked my dad, I said, the priest said something that really confused me. Can you explain that from the Bible? And he said, oh, well, I don't read the Bible because it's too hard and too difficult to understand. That's why these priests study the Bible for years and sometimes decades and go to seminaries so that they can interpret the Bible for us. And then fast forward to the first couple of years where I was coming around here. And I think one of the things that struck me most was coming out to like a central teaching just like this, seeing the text up on the screen reading along and being able to understand that. That blew me away. Not to mention the things that I was reading, the things that I was learning were actually relevant to my life because I used to think that the Bible was completely irrelevant. That it was this ancient document that, that, that didn't mean anything. That it was like mythology. And yet God says, no, I want you to take responsibility to learn what the Bible has to say. Don't rely on these teachers or these scholars or these commentators. You need to learn what I have to say for yourself and apply it. Verses two through five, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for you all, I pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Like we mentioned last week in Galatians chapter six, one of the ways that we can participate in the work of God in other places, in the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ is by our financial support. So the Philippian church, apparently from the first day that they came to Christ up until the present day when Paul was writing this letter, were actually sending gifts. And Paul says, your contribution has actually led to the significant spread of the message of Jesus throughout the known world. He says in verses 7, 12, and 13, it's right for me to feel this way about you all since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. Now I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the entire Praetorian Guard and everyone else in Rome that I am in chains in, uh, for Christ. So even though Paul doesn't give us an exact date for the writing of this letter, he kind of you know, lays out some breadcrumbs for us to put together the pieces. First of all, he says that he's in chains. So he's in prison when he's writing this letter. And then he says that he is interacting with the Praetorian Guard. Now, the Praetorian Guard were an elite group of soldiers, legion of, of Roman soldiers that occupied the city of Rome. 
There's about 5,000 men in the Praetorian Guard, and their sole job was to make sure that if there was an uprising in Rome or foreign invaders, that they needed to protect the city. Now, since that didn't happen for, for many centuries, these Praetorian Guard would take on side jobs where they would escort officials, or in this case, apparently, they were guarding Paul as he was in prison in Rome. What we can gather from this letter is that Paul was in prison in Rome and renting a house there while he was under house arrest. And he also rented a praetorian guard so that he had free access to people coming in and out of his house. So obviously there's a lot of stuff that happens from Acts chapter 16 until when this book is written. But what we can tell is that the events or, or the writing of the book of Philippians does not really match up with anything that we find in the book of Acts. And so the likely date for the book of Philippians is around AD 60, after the events of the book of Acts. So I think it's important for us to consider Paul's situation, just kind of take a step back here, right? Because a lot of stuff has happened in the book of Acts that we haven't mentioned. First of all, when you think about Paul the Apostle, he is a world-class Jewish scholar. If you ever study his life, it's amazing. Because Paul apparently came from a wealthy family. We're told that he was a native-born Roman citizen, which probably meant that his family traveled to Italy from Judea, where he lived, or Antioch, or Tarsus, it's not real clear where he originated from, and that being born on Italian soil made him a Roman citizen. Now that afforded you all of these different rights. But we're also told too that he studied under this famous rabbi named Gamaliel, who's known to us in extra biblical texts because of his fame. This guy, Gamaliel, was a expert in the Old Testament scripture. So Paul actually was able to study underneath a world-class scholar. This would be like the equivalent of getting a PhD at Harvard today. So Paul was incredibly brilliant, incredibly educated. We're also told that he planted more than one church right after he came to Christ. It's not clear what he was all doing during this period of time in his life, but it's clear that he had planted at least one church in Damascus. He received at least two direct revelations from God himself. One in Acts chapter 9, where as a persecutor of the church, he is heading to Damascus to persecute more Christians. And guess who he runs into? The risen Jesus. And Jesus confronts him and says, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? And so God took exception of Paul and gave him a vision. Not to mention in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we're told that he had this other vision where God caught him up into heaven and he was able to see things so magnificent, so wonderful that he couldn't even talk about them. God actually prevented him from speaking about such things because they were so magnificent. And so Paul was in this privileged position where he saw things that the average Christian doesn't see. 
He completed three missionary journeys and planted numerous churches throughout the ancient world, which probably impacted hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, for Christ. Easily, Paul was the most effective Christian worker in the world. You know, you you put him up against guys like Peter the Apostle or John the Apostle. These guys had a lot of influence in the early church, but nothing compared to the Apostle Paul. This guy was driven, he was brilliant, he was ambitious, and he was dedicated. And yet at the peak of his competence, he was wrongfully arrested in Jerusalem. In fact, as they were going to attach him to, the, to this pole and flog him, he appeals to Caesar, which means that he gets an opportunity to have his case heard before Caesar himself which began this long process consisting of years where Paul was awaiting this trial. And so he sits in jail for over two years in Palestine, awaiting transport to Rome. And then on his way to Rome, he's shipwrecked. We're told about this in in Acts chapter 27 and 28, that as he's sailing, they get shipwrecked and he gets washed ashore on Malta where he gets bitten by a venomous snake to add to all of it. So for three whole months, while it's winter, he's unable to go to Rome and then finally sets sail to Rome and gets there. But this whole ordeal takes about an entire year. And then when he finally shows up to Rome, he's awaiting for trial before Caesar for at least another two years under house arrest. And he's being tried for a capital crime. If his appeal doesn't go through, he will be executed immediately. You know, if you were the Apostle Paul, I'm sure it would be incredibly difficult to go through all of this. You know, can you imagine how that would feel? I mean, of all the people that God could call to to do something like this, why would he bench the Apostle Paul? Why of all people? I mean, if there was anybody who was the man who is God's anointed person. It was the Apostle Paul. So why would he throw him in prison and let him rot there for two years? You know, if you were the Apostle Paul, you'd probably be asking yourself, what am I doing here? You know, Paul probably prayed, God, please get me out of this situation. I don't belong here. Send me one of those earthquakes like last time. Remember that? And yet, God was silent. He didn't release him from this. You know, it's easy in these moments to ask yourself, where is God? You know, intellectually, we know that God is sovereign, that he's all-powerful. And yet, when we experience suffering, it challenges that belief, doesn't it? That's where the rubber hits the road. And we find ourselves questioning whether or not God has made a mistake or if he's lost control of the situation. Well, the Apostle Paul didn't have your typical response. We're told in verse 12 that Paul says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the entire Praetorian Guard. So a little bit more information about the Praetorian Guard here. 
these guys typically after 20 years would get a pension where the Roman government would give them a plot of land in one of their provinces. And it was free for the Romans. I mean, they conquered this land and they would give these elite soldiers and officers these plots of land where they can continue to spread the influence of the Roman Empire. So it was actually strategic. Now, I'm sure as Paul is sitting there and the next guard comes in for the shift, they shackle Paul to this guy. And Paul looks at his shackle and starts to follow the chain to the Praetorian guard. And he's like, bet you're wondering why I'm here. I'm sure most of those guys were like, nope, hasn't occurred to me. And he was probably like, well, too bad. You're going to hear about it anyway. And one by one, he would share the message of Jesus with each and every one of these Praetorian guards. And many of them came to faith. I'm certain that at some point he probably realized, listen, these guys think I'm their prisoner. Actually, they're my prisoner. <laughs> they're going to be a captive audience for the next eight hours. Can you imagine being chained up to the Apostle Paul for eight hours? That'd be so intense. <laughs> and what's interesting is that what happened was, according to Hosta Gonzalez, the eminent Christian historian, is that one of the primary ways that Christianity spread throughout the entire Roman Empire was through the Roman army. And so it's likely, it's likely that what Paul was doing here was making an incredible impact that he had no clue what was happening. He also says in verse 14, because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. Just his mere presence in Rome and his encouragement caused the believers to be more bold. So when we think about this, Paul's situation, I think when we look at suffering in our lives, I think it's really easy to think about things along a vertical or a horizontal plane, right? It's me against these people. It's me against this institution or this structure that is corrupt. It's me against this situation, these circumstances that are completely out of my control. And yet, Paul was able to see not only things from a horizontal perspective, but also he was able to see things vertically. He was able to see how God was involved in this situation. When you look at what he did in that two and a half years or so, he wrote four New Testament letters that has impacted billions of people over two millennia. I mean, it's astounding the kind of impact that these letters had. Paul the Apostle was a guy who was a, a very driven person. I'm sure it probably took God imprisoning him to make him right. And here we are today, writing a letter that he wrote two millennia ago that has probably led billions of people over the course of 2,000 years to Christ. He also shared the gospel with the Praetorian Guard, which eventually led to the spread of Christianity throughout the Roman Empire. 
You know, most of these results were completely unseen by Paul. I'm sure that if you took the Apostle Paul today and we, we had him here to look back on what was happening 2,000 plus years ago, that from, that pres- from the present vantage point, he would be totally shocked by what he saw. There's no way that he could have anticipated the kind of impact he would have in that two and a half years. I mean, it's not really an exaggeration to say that those two and a half years, he got more done for God than in all three of those missionary journeys put together. You know, I think the last year has been hard for a lot of us. Many of us in this room are following God and have, and have gotten a taste for serving him, realizing that that's the thing that really brings about joy and happiness in the Christian life. And I know that over the last year or so, there have been times where I've experienced intense frustration because more than anything else in my life, I want to matter for God. And I know some of you feel the same way. And yet, these COVID restrictions, these circumstances that have come into our lives have blocked us from being effective for him. And it's frustrating. You know, some of you are, were excited because you wanted to get into class and meet new people so that you could share the message of Jesus with them. Or maybe you were looking forward to a class that was going to basically help you learn more about the Bible and get you equipped so you could do more effective service for God. Maybe you're looking forward to spending all of the, the spring and summer of 2020 with friends, not worrying about wearing masks or the capacity of your house. Being able to give your friend a hug as they're suffering. And yet, I wonder if we're going to look back on this time of our lives sometime many years from now and realize God made an incredible impact during this period that I had no clue about. So let's try to wrap up with how to obtain joy in affliction. I think, first of all, you cannot obtain this kind of joy that Paul describes apart from God. This kind of happiness You can't just have that independent of a relationship with God. This is what Paul says in Romans 8, 28. He says, we know that in all things, God works for the good to those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes to conform us into the image of his son. Notice he says he can work all things for good, including all of the hardship that you have faced. All things. He can redeem even the worst kind of suffering that we endure in this life. And yet, this doesn't just apply to us, right? He qualifies that and says that it applies to those who have been called according to his purpose and who love him. You know, when you think about the atheistic, naturalistic view, there is no meaning in suffering. When you look at the atheistic view of the world, what you have is blind chance working within a closed system of cause and effect. And you cannot extract meaning in suffering from that system. 
And yet God offers an alternative. He says, I'm involved in your life and I'm powerful enough to do something about the suffering you're experiencing. That I can actually take that and use it for good. But it's under one condition. That you place your faith in me and come under my protection and leadership. And notice too, he says, to those who love him. It also requires active faith in God, trusting him in the midst of suffering. I've known many people who are Christians who've gone through intense suffering and don't seem any better for it as a result. Who are now just more bitter and angry toward God and the people around them. And so it's not just automatic. You need to have faith in God as you're going through suffering. Also, we're capable of enduring tremendous suffering if we believe our suffering will actually contribute to a greater good. That's what drove Paul. That's what gave him intense joy in serving. It's when we decide to give our lives to God and to serve him that we become happy. And we talked about this last week. Happiness in the Christian life comes from serving, not being selfish. And so we see, as uh, Frederick Buckner points out, the place God calls you is the place where deep gladness and the world's deep hunger come together. Happiness and joy come from playing your part in God's plan. Finally, we can experience moments of true happiness and suffering as we anticipate the never-ending happiness that we will have in God's presence. It's a little misleading when you hear people talk about biblical joy and they say that it is the confident assurance that God can use this suffering in, a, in some sort of way. That's not what you intuitively think of when you think of joy, right? When you think of joy, you think of a child who eagerly and, and happily is just ripping open the gift wrapping of a present on Christmas Eve, right? That exhilaration is joy, happiness. And God actually says that we can experience real happiness in the midst of trial. Even though it's not necessarily a feeling state all the time, when you take a step back, even in the midst of suffering, and look at your entire life, and somebody asks you, are you happy with your life? If you are a follower of God, typically that you'll answer, I'm happy with my life. Yes. But even in the midst of times of intense suffering, we see that feelings of happiness punctuate that period. Randy Alcorn points out, he says, many have found happiness in the times of hardship by anticipating the glory and goodness that await us. A trapped miner in pain from broken bones can be overwhelmed with joy as he hears his rescuers making their way toward him, even though the actual rescue may not take place for hours or even days. You see, the hope of our salvation, the hope of God restoring us, the hope of God using our suffering to redeem the world around us is what gives us incredible joy. So there you have Philippians chapter 1.
Why don't I just pray for us? Lord, we really just thank you so much that you give us the opportunity, that you make it even possible to have joy amidst suffering. We're also really grateful that you speak about relevant topics in our lives. I know that when I was a new Christian, I was just surprised to see that things like suffering, things like purpose and meaning in life were included in the Bible and that you speak to those things. And we just thank you for that. And we pray that you would give us comfort as we may be going through suffering or hardship right now. Finally, I pray for those of us who may not know you in a personal way, who are asking the same question that the Philippian jailer was asking, how, what must I do to be saved? Thank you that you clearly articulate that it's just simply by believing in the Lord Jesus that we can be saved. And I pray that if anybody is here tonight who senses that you are calling them to place their trust in you, that they would open up their hearts and invite you in. We thank you for anybody who did that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.